0: God's Word. Father, we started off our service today acknowledging that you are great. You are truly awesome. And the things that we're going to try to delve in today as we read your Word are part of things that are way beyond us in our understanding And so, Lord, with humility, we come asking your Holy Spirit to help us gain insight into what your Spirit inspired Matthew to write. We pray that we might be able to understand more of the glory of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. And we pray, Father, that we might truly know him and that we might be changed because we don't just know about him, but we truly know him as the one who is with us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. When you think about the birth and the life and the teaching and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it seems like there's one thing that characterizes almost all of those. That's controversy. Jesus was a controversial person who said and did controversial things. Some people who knew Jesus became loyal, devoted followers of his. They were willing to lay down their lives for him and for his cause and for his kingdom. But we know there were many others who rejected his claims. Many others who did their best to destroy him with using rumors and innuendo and false accusations. So it's against this backdrop of controversy that we come now to the gospel, gospel writers, and particularly Matthew, who is carefully writing now this account for uh, his readers. He's uh, writing for the early Christians there in the first century. He's giving to them well-researched accounts of the life of Christ, of gospel of Jesus. And he and the other gospel writers are trying to do what they can to fend off all these scandals to all these disputes, all these false allegations that were swirling about this person named Jesus of Nazareth. So, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do their best to provide those Jesus' early disciples with reliable, convincing proof that Jesus is worthy of their devotion. He's worthy of our devotion, He's worthy of our worship and our service. And that's why Matthew chapter 1 was written. Last week, we considered the significance of one of the names that was given to Jesus, even while he was in utero, still in the womb, the name Jesus. He was sent on a mission to rescue his people from their sins. Well, this morning, we're going to look now at verses 22 and 23 of Matthew 1 and turn our attention to the second name that was given to this one who was to be born regarding this Miraculously conceived baby boy, Emmanuel, God with us. Let's look at and consider two insights into this baby's identity. First insight is, according to the gospel, Jesus is astonishingly deity. He is divine. For many years, rumors again had circulated in the Jewish world and in the Roman world that Jesus was not the Messiah. And the reason why so many people thought or heard this kind of uh, comment about Jesus was that he could not have been sent by God since it was reported that Jesus was conceived in the context of sexual immorality. This was the rumor flying around. And when you think about it, you think about the context of what happened here. You, you have a situation of, in that particular society, in Jewish first-century society, you have two family systems that come together, and they arrange a marriage, and they have a groom who's going to be now uh, be joined to a young lady, a young maiden. Uh, they're very young. She is. He's much older, probably. And the two families agree, and they go through this process by which there's probably exchange some sort of. Of bride price that's initially put down. And there is this contractual assumption officially pledging each other to the other, and that it is called betrothal. There's a sense in which they are now legally uh, going to be joined together in marriage. There's a sense of fidelity now that must uh, go on between these two. And usually it takes about a year in which these two individuals would still remain in their homes living with their parents. But within the next year, they would then, therefore, have an actual ceremony, be joined in marriage, and they would, not only in a public ceremony, but obviously in private, they would consummate their marriage physically. So, how is it then that during this one year period of time, of the betrothal period, that this woman named Mary finds herself pregnant? It's a scandal. This is something that in a small town clearly would be known far and wide. This is not something you can hide very easily. And this scandalous news is blown about, as you know, so easily by the winds of gossip, which were not invented in the last hundred years. That's been going on for centuries. And it was commonly assumed that Jesus of Nazareth could never be the Messiah since he was conceived out of wedlock. How could a baby so closely associated with sexual sin be the one who is the holy Savior somehow sent to rescue people from their sin? That's sort of the implied question that Matthew is trying to tackle in Matthew chapter 1. Now, the issue is so serious and such an ongoing chronic issue raised again and again with Jesus that if you look in Mark chapter 6, In one of the dialogues in which Jesus is being discussed by the people of the community there, the question is raised regarding the identity of Jesus. And this is now as an adult, this is 30 years into it. The question was raised, Mark chapter 6, verse 3, is not this man, the carpenter, the son of Mary? Now, that should make you stop and pause for a second. If you know anything about how anyone would describe a man in his 30s, you would describe him as the son of his father, not the son of his mother. It's true, perhaps, his father was dead by that time, Joseph. But here in the text, it says the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. The question, I think, is posed to convey the scandalous nature of Jesus' alleged illegitimate birth the same thing surfaces later also in john chapter 8 when the jews are answering jesus after jesus explains uh, his concern about them and what their loyalty is to abraham and all their claims to hold, him and then they say we were not born of fornication we have one father even god The statement, I believe, was meant to shame Jesus into silence. Since everyone knew that Joseph was not his biological father, Jesus was accused of being born of fornication. So what about this rumor? What about the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth? Well, obviously Matthew makes clear in his Gospel there's nothing scandalous at all to disqualify Jesus from being the Messiah. There's nothing here that would hinder him from fulfilling the role of being the anointed one, that his conception, his birth, is nothing more than a miraculous event brought about by God. And this angel that is sent, who brings this announcement, explaining all this, is served sort of like a, a, a huge rainstorm on a, a wildfire that's been blown about by intense winds that just extinguishes all those flames that are spreading, spreading, spreading. This announcement by this angel does the same thing. It sets the record straight and stops all the rumor and innuendo. Verse 20, chapter 1, Matthew the baby conceived in Mary was of the Holy Spirit. This baby was God's doing the baby conceived by the holy spirit was none other than god in human flesh and this explains why matthew then quotes isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 he is trying to show the significance of this baby being born who is just not a mere baby he's not a baby born uh, illegitimately out of a uh, out of wedlock kind of physical relationship no He says, the virgin, he cites what happened there back in Isaiah 7. The virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And the thing you really ought to underline in your Bible there is the word God. God with us. Not just a baby with us. This is God with us. An astonishing detail that this baby wrapped in strips of cloth, this baby that was placed into not a nice fancy uh, crib with all of these nice uh, padded little pillows all around and, and all of the, you know, it's amazing what they can do for the first child that comes home. You know how fancy the, the bed they can make for this child who will outgrow it in a very short amount of time. But this, this child was placed in a feeding trough where cattle would normally eat their food, this one who's placed there is the omnipotent creator of the heavens and the earth. It it just boggles the mind. Sometimes as we read this account, we get so focused on angels and shepherds and shining stars that we fail to miss, we, we miss out on this obvious emphasis of the passage that Jesus is God in human flesh is not an ordinary baby born as a offspring of two human people His earthly beginning cannot be accurately understood apart from his supernatural conception and the emphasis on scripture here as you read the accounts not only in Matthew but also in Luke the emphasis is not so much on Mary it's on the Holy Spirit The Holy Spirit in telling us that Jesus has and is divine. He is God. I find it sad that it, it, again, took so many years and uh, now it's been added to church history that in 1854, I don't know where they were 1,800 years prior to this, but 1854, the Roman Catholic Church came up with the doctrine of Immaculate Conception of Mary which they recognized at that time meant that Mary, they, they alleged, was supposedly preserved somehow from the effects of Adam's sins, as if Mary herself was beyond sinning. But what does the Scripture say? What does the Scripture emphasize? The Scripture makes explicitly clear that, number one, Mary says, God my Savior, in Luke chapter 1, but also makes clear here in this text that Jesus' conception was directly caused by the work of God's Spirit. Jesus of Nazareth is not a mere mortal baby. He is uniquely divine and human. And Paul summarizes who Jesus was in these profound realities in Colossians chapter 2. Listen to this. For in Jesus all the fullness of deity is, dwells in bodily form. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. So one of the remarkable things we learn from Jesus' name, Emmanuel, is that Christmas is not just mere sentimentality the Son of God, who existed from all eternity prior to creation, chose to take on human flesh and enter into creation in the form of a helpless little baby. God with us. He is with us in our human existence. He is with us in this creation. He is the God who is the transcendent, all-powerful one, yes, who made all things, but He is also the God who says, I've come down here to you. I'm now one among you. One of the things as you think about the profound truth, and I've listed a couple of them in your notes there, is to think about the unique attributes of this one who was sent. He is omniscient, that is, Jesus knew all things. He says in, Mark, in John chapter 6 that Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray Him. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen at the end of His ministry. We also know that Jesus was eternal, not only knowing all things, but He was one who never had a beginning. He never was brought into existence like you and me. He has always existed, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, of course. And then in John 17, verse 5, Jesus says, glorify me together with yourself, Father. He's praying to the Lord with the glory that I had with you before the world began. See, Jesus was preexistent. He didn't just somehow begin at the moment he was conceived in Mary. And then lastly, we realize that Jesus is the righteous one. He is the only one who is holy as God. And therefore, in John chapter 8, we read that Jesus said, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. What person can say that? Show me one person who can honestly say they always do the things that please God the Father. Clearly, Jesus is God. And therefore, He is one who, as God, has come down in order to enable us to feel as though we are not far and distant away from God, and He is somehow indifferent, uncaring, unconcerned, and unable to ever be in touch with what we deal with in life. He has come among us. And therefore, He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our offering of our bodies as living sacrifices and placing them on, as it were, a continuously laying there on an altar saying, Lord Jesus, I am yours. Use me as you will because you are here with us in the gospel. there's Much more I could say about that, but I want to move on to the second point that uh, has been occupying my mind this week. And that is that not only do we learn that Jesus Christ is astonishingly deity, but he is also remarkably close. Remarkably close. If you know anything about ancient Near Eastern religions, they had all sorts of gods, all sorts of, of different, um, they would call um, divine beings that they would depict and that they would uh, create different idols and, and uh, depictions of these particular gods. And according to the scholars, of course, these gods were normally aloof and they were people who were distant from any of the creatures here on earth, humans on earth. And so one scholar said, the mythology of the ancient world understood the gods to be involved in a variety of activities similar to those that engage human beings. So now think of this now. The mindset of those who would worship these various gods of their particular society, they assumed that those gods would be doing the same things you and I do. Brushing their teeth, uh, you know, taking a nap, um, you know, eating food, uh, all those kind of things, just normal routines of life. And so Elijah, you remember the prophet Elijah on the Mount Carmel? He is challenging the gods, uh, the god of Baal, which was very popular at that time. And so he's talking to all these prophets who are trying to get their god of Baal to respond somehow in a storm and, and show that he is a truly uh, in, one in existence and has any kind of power. So what does uh, Elijah do? He sort of taunts them. And he says, what's wrong? Is Baal somehow on a journey? Is he on vacation? Is he somehow asleep or preoccupied? Where is he? He was doing that because that was the common way which they assumed that that's what their gods would do. And of course, consistently throughout the scripture, God makes it very clear that he detests any type of representation of himself in any kind of carving or graven image meant to somehow represent him why because in doing such a thing you have misrepresented the true living almighty god god is not something that has been created or fashioned by anyone or anything else he is not merely located in one place and can be picked up and carried somewhere else that's why in the Incarnation, Jesus Christ reveals himself as Emmanuel, God with us, the God who is omnipresent, the God who is with His people, wherever his people are. And Jesus, in the Gospel, breaks down this wall of separation that has been created by our sin, and He rescues us from this aloneness, the sense in which we are now distant and away from, far away from God, cut off from him by our sin. And He now is going through the gospel, going to dwell in us by His Holy Spirit. This means that no matter where you are or where I am, God is with us. No matter how insignificant you may think you are compared to other people in this world, God is with you. No matter how mundane the work that you are assigned to do, It seems like this is just ridiculous things I have to continually do week after week. No matter, God is with you in the midst of that. No matter how inadequately or you are failing to meet up to the standards of discipling and discipleship, God is with you. I'm convinced that one of the sad realities of Christianity among many of us is that we give mental assent and we say, oh yes, I believe that Jesus is with me. We believe in the doctrine of God's omnipresence, that he is everywhere with his people every day in every situation. Yes, we believe that. But we live with a reality that is far removed from that. Francis Schaeffer, the great Christian philosopher and apologist years ago, compared this kind of affirmation in our mind but the experience is content, uh, totally different and at odds with that he compared it to a starving man who is seated across from a huge buffet now i'm thinking of the kind they have in lancaster county i'm i, I hear about these things i've been there once and uh, they have these fancy smorgasbords where, right where they they fix this entire huge spread of food And there must be scores and scores of delicious food items have been ready and prepared for your consumption and enjoyment. And so here's this starving man sitting across from all that. And the man does not dispute the the existence of the food. He says, oh, yes, there's food there. And he does not dispute the fact that the uh, food is real. But he never eats it. He just sits there and looks at it. He never consumes the delicious food. And, for, and sadly for many of us, we affirm the abiding presence of Christ in our minds, but it really never seems to make much a difference in terms of how we live. We live as if he's far, far away, removed, uninterested in us or our situations, uninvolved in our everyday lives or in the everyday life and the corporate life of the people of God in the body of Christ. But Jesus is Emmanuel. He is near His children. He abides with His children every day, day in and day out. And therefore, the Incarnation should be providing to us tremendous comfort, encouragement, and help in all sorts of situations that we fight, face in everyday life. And I've been trying just to think and brainstorm several different situations, and these are listed in your notes. And So think about where you, where, which one fits where you are. Are you a person who is sometimes feeling overwhelmed? Overwhelmed by the challenging tasks that are on your plate. Maybe you're a mother or a father. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, my child. Maybe a child who's very young still. That's still learning to be corrected. Learning to submit to authority. And you're still asking yourself, will this child ever get it? Will he, he or she ever get to the point where they... Uh, lovingly obey on the first-time obedience. Or maybe you have a teenager whose heart seems disinterested in spiritual things, who's, who seems much more interested in, in playing the, the next video game or, or social media and all the excitement of what that happens in every day, and far more interested in knowing about that world than in the world of the God who made him or her. And into that discouragement, feeling overwhelmed, Jesus knew that we would go through those kinds of situations. And so what does he say when he leaves his disciples behind? And he says, okay, now I'm now conferring upon you this privilege and honor of being those who will make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Remember, I'm with you always, even to the end of this age, which means between now and when I come back, I'm with you. What did Moses need to hear when he was given this unbelievable task? (laughs) His assignment was to, all right, Moses, even though you as a person that lived in the household of Pharaoh and you grew up there and you walked away from all that and fled to Midian, now you're going to come back and I want you to go to Pharaoh and God is calling you to step up to his face and say, listen, I am going to lead all of these children of Israel out of here out of bondage, and we're leaving to go worship God and follow Him somewhere else, what does he need to hear in order to face that kind of overwhelming task? What God says to him in Exodus 3, I will be with you. These are the kind of things that when we feel overwhelmed and feeling like we're way over our head, we're out of our league, as it were, Do you hear the reminder of Jesus Emmanuel saying, I'm with you, I'm with you to help you? Secondly, you might be facing a situation when you feel as though, as was shared earlier this morning, you feel as though you're nervous when it comes to talking about the gospel, talking about your faith. When you become very afraid to delve into the issues of people's hearts and and you know that there's a high degree of likelihood perhaps that you might be mocked. That they might begin to attack you and, and point out faults in your own life or, or somehow of, of Christians in general that you might be rejected and they might look at you as if you're sort of crazy. May I remind you of the kind of encouragement and word of affirmation that Jesus gave to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 18, verse 10. God said to Paul, do not be afraid any longer. But go on speaking and do not be silent. Why? How can he do that? Because he knew all of the tremendous opposition he was beginning to face. For I am with you. That will help him through all of the challenges, the fears, the agony of sometimes stepping out there and speaking of Christ in the gospel. Do you find that to be your comfort? Knowing that Emmanuel is saying, I'm with you when you speak of me. Or maybe your situation is also one in which you feel that you're rather afraid and fear is gripping your heart. Fear of the unknown. Fear of the uncertainties that lurk around the corner. You don't know exactly what's coming in the future. And that concern is, feels as though your life is losing control and you don't know exactly what you're going to face. May I remind you of that great verse that has been such a comfort to me time and time and time again, especially on long nights when I cannot sleep, which is rather rare. I sleep like a rock most nights, but there are times when I'm lying there awake and Isaiah 41.10 comes on the screen in my mind. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you, I will strengthen you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Is there fear that is causing you to lose a sense of of the abiding presence of Christ Emmanuel, the one one who has come, he's with you. He's with you in whatever situation you're, you're facing now and whatever situation you'll face in the future. I think of the illustration of my dog who has now been readopted, I must say. We adopted the dog from somebody, uh, her name was Angel. And so then we readopted the dog back to the same family who years later loved love to take the dog back. It's a long story, but anyway, it all worked out fine. Well, this dog was a, one of these dogs, I would not call it as the man's best friend. It, it was rather comfortable off on its own. And we would offer to have the dog sit, you know, in the chair with you and I'll pet you and I'll show you attention. The dog was, no, I want to lay over here and put the blanket over me and leave me alone. That's basically the dog was very content that way until you have a thunderstorm. You get a thunderstorm and little angel becomes the most loving dog you've ever seen. The dog is right at your feet. The dog will not, it was touching, pushing up against your legs, sitting in the chair beside you. Not, nothing between you and the dog. I mean, it's amazing how... The fear of thunder would bring angel's interest in being with her master. Isn't it true that fear and anxiety and the, the, the areas of which we are afraid is an opportunity to say this is where God wants to draw us closer to himself, to trust him, to believe that he is there, he is with us and is indeed for us. Let me think of another situation. Maybe your path is leading you into the darkness and the foreboding fog, if you will, down in the valley of a situation in which your health is declining. And maybe you're dealing with a diagnosis of cancer or some sort of disease or some sort of chronic condition that is not likely to change or get better. And you look at those things and you realize I am also might be facing the fact of someone you dearly loved is no longer here. They themselves have gone through death and now you are left in the darkness of grief and mourning. How does Emmanuel help us at that moment through these kinds of situations? Psalm 23 verse 4 comes to mind when the psalmist who was reflecting on the fact that even though he's walking, called to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, There's lots of danger there, lots of concerns, lots of things that are overwhelming to him. He says, I will fear no evil. Why? He says, for you are with me. Do you believe that that Emmanuel is with you in what you're facing regarding those kinds of fear-producing situations? Regarding your health, the uncertainties of, of someone else's death? And how life changes dramatically because of it. Emmanuel, I'm with you. And lastly, I'll just throw out another one there. Is there so, I could do an endless list of these, it seems like, but I'm just going to give you one more. This is a generalized one that probably applies to all of us here. We're facing some sort of affliction, some trial in your life. It could be financial, it could be a relational one, someone in your family, somebody else. It could be a job situation, some sort of affliction. And God, what does He tell the children of Israel? when they were out ready to go through many different types of afflictions and trials. And they were very, very uh, overwhelming. These were foreign nations coming in attacking them. Isaiah 43. If you got your Bible, look this one up. This is good. Isaiah 43, verse 2. God says to the children of Israel, When you pass through the waters... He doesn't say, if... Like, it may happen in your life you're going to have a trial or problem or you're going to have some sort of affliction. No, it's going to happen. We know it's going to happen. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Then he ends by saying, verse 5, Do not fear, for I am with you. What a difference it makes if you believe that in the midst of affliction, in the midst of a trial, in the midst of a problem that doesn't seem to go away, if you believe and are actually trusting that God is with you in that, what does that do to your outlook and your spirit and your attitude? It dramatically changes. Because you're not questioning whether or not God no longer loves you or whether he's somehow forgotten about you. No, you know he's there with you. He's teaching you lessons. He's walking you through this for His own purposes and to make you more like Christ. Hebrews thirteen five says, I, your God, will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. What wonderful promises from Emmanuel to help us in our challenges of life. Here's Matthew highlighting in this opening chapters in chapter 1 of his gospel, it's fascinating that the promises about Jesus, the promises about Emmanuel are listed for us after giving us an ancestry, a genealogical listing, not complete, but it has summary names of people there. Isn't it interesting to notice the number of people whose names are on that list, were, those, their lives were marred by scandals, by shameful sin that they themselves were involved in or the sins of other people who committed them against them. And therefore their lives were affected by what other people did to them. they were rejected by other people, perhaps avoided. they were cut off from the internal uh, I mean sorry, cut off from the normal community and relationships that they would have longed to have enjoyed. into these lonely lives, Jesus came to dwell. You see, God does not keep his distance from those who are fallen and those who are filled with shame, those who are failures. Jesus identifies with those whose lives are lived. Under the cloud of shame and scandal and humiliation, He invites us to be united to Him by faith, to share in the benefits of the offense of His cross. And He extends to us the blessings of, ex- of exchanging our shame and our sin for His glory and His new nature. And into the realities of this brokenness and sorrow and dishonor and disobedience and sin and suffering. Jesus offers comforting reassurance. I am with you. I am Emmanuel, God with His people, God with you and me. Let's pray. Before I pray, I'm just going to ask if there's any... Those of us who are here, if you'll just think for a moment, what situation are you facing? And what is your perspective on that situation? Are you believing in your mind that God is with you, that you know that you're not alone? But is your heart anxious, fearful, uptight? Are you frantic in dealing with life on your own? Or has this become an opportunity in which God is now trying to draw you into a greater awareness that He's right here with you? That His love has not changed for you? That His coming to you is designed to deal with you, to help you to know to, to know Him better and to trust Him more and to rest in the peace that He is right In the midst of whatever you're dealing with, Lord, I pray that you would help us to not be schizophrenic Christians who say we believe in one reality and yet we live an entirely different reality. Lord, help us, we pray, to enter into the fullness of what it means to know you as Emmanuel to know you in the midst of whatever it is that we face. For some of us, that means that we need to face the fact that we are people who, who have never really come to you on your terms. And so we've never really surrendered to you and come in faith and asking that you would rescue and save us from our sin. Give us the gift of eternal life. and Give us new nature and new heart. So Lord, help us to know that you are with us in doing that that we can approach you because of Emmanuel and his coming to us first on the cross and laying down his life and dying for us and our sin and then being raised for our justification. For the rest of us, Lord, if we've come in faith to you, in belief and in repentance, we pray that you would now teach us what it means to trust you and to know you as our Emmanuel. In every situation, every trial, every kind of uh, fear-producing experience. We pray that you may be our comfort, be our joy, be our all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.